BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. That sound you're hearing is a radio made out of cardboard boxes. It gets tuned to different languages with pliers made out of cardboard, too. That piano plinking, it's also constructed from cardboard boxes. This is an installation called the Artist's Room. Sound is layered over a fantasy world created from cardboard. There's even an old-fashioned payphone in a cardboard phone booth. This is the California Report magazine, and on today's show, we're going to talk about boxes, living inside and outside of them, starting with this very literal interpretation of breaking down the box, the work of L.A.-based artists who call themselves Doss House. Everybody knows what it's like to be a kid and have that big cardboard box, either a refrigerator box or a TV box or something, and it can become anything. It's, it's a castle, it's a rocket ship, it's a race car, it's a fort. At his studio in Ventura, David Connolly uses cardboard to create cartoon-like worlds, breathing new life into an object people typically throw away. A lot of people donate boxes to Doss House. Then David just strips off the labels and the tape, whips out his box cutter and his hacksaw, and transforms the cardboard into these everyday objects that he paints using shades of black and white. I just like working with cardboard. I like the way it, I like the way it fights you. It doesn't want to necessarily be anything but a box. Um, but if you can work with it and you can work within its limitations, it's such an amazing medium and it will allow you to let it become something completely different. Like a record player made of cardboard, tape, and glue, playing Abe Lyman's California Orchestra from 1926. Doss House made lots of objects like this for a life-size installation called the Paper Thin Hotel at a Los Angeles gallery last year. Every detail was made from cardboard and paper, from ashtrays to light fixtures to the clothes the artists wore while standing inside the installation. I like the idea of subverting people's sense of reality. Every single piece that I make 
is all about just shifting your perspective on reality, even if it's just for a moment. On today's show, we're looking at a lot of different kinds of boxes, like living in a tiny house with a baby. Or in a jail cell when you're transgender. So I wanted them to have a safe place where they can wear their shorts, their bras, and their tops, and their little tennis shoes, and come out and just be ladies, and be able to work out, play basketball. Plus, the boxes we check to define who we are. I have always been too Spanish for my Korean side, too Korean for my Spanish side, and a little too brown for everyone. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Our next story is about people living in a home that's very much like a box. We're going to meet a young Sacramento couple who joined the tiny house movement and downsized big time. Fans of tiny living say it brings more freedom. But how hard is it to keep living that way as a family grows? Here's reporter Alan Young. Who's that friend of yours who seems to live an impossible life on social media? For me, that's my friends Justin and Melissa Smith. They're always on some exotic adventure. Here they are on top of Mount Whitney. They've cycled in Portugal in a rainstorm. We just bombed down into Gondomar. I'm so We are soaked. Their freewheeling lifestyle got Justin and Melissa on the show Tiny House Nation in 2015. The reality show built them a 128-square-foot house on wheels, an upgrade after living out of the trunk of Justin's car. Now it's time to welcome Justin and Melissa to the tiny house community. We're homeowners. <laughs> Justin and Melissa are public school teachers so in Folsom outside Sacramento. So their housing options were limited, but they could have afforded something bigger. So the tiny house was really an extension of their nomadic and privileged lifestyle. Here's Melissa on the show. Such a freeing feeling to know that our home can come with us wherever we decide we want to go. And it seems they've been living happily ever after. A few months ago, Melissa became pregnant. Like many soon-to-be parents, they have grand plans for babyhood, like cooking all the baby's food and washing its cloth diapers. Ambitious for a house as big as a hallway. We want to make food, so yeah, we've got a little baby food maker. Dried, jarred beans and rice and vegetables and herbs. We're gonna do cloth diapers. We have a washer machine inside. It's a washer-dryer combo. It, the dry is more of a tumble. It's very slow. Did Justin and Melissa plan on raising a kid in a tiny house? Kinda. In the making of the tiny house, we were kind of like, oh, we'll just figure that out when it comes. Mm -hmm. And we, we have. <laughs> and we, we still know that we've got a lot to figure out, mm -hmm. and that's going to be in the next six weeks. Life for Justin and Melissa is about to become far more difficult in ways they couldn't have prepared for. <laughs> the challenges started during the delivery. Melissa's labor lasted five days. Five 
days. I just remember bawling and I like turned to everyone. I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And they're like, you've done an Ironman. You've run an ultra. You can do this. And I'm like, yeah, the longest that was was 14 hours. (laughs) This has been way longer. The next time I check in with Justin and Melissa, it's a month and a half since the birth of their daughter. Due to an emergency C-section, Melissa has been unable to walk. She spends hours each day stuck in the loft of their tiny home. I just am kind of like trapped up there, like having to like breathe through this frustration or just put her down and let her cry. The couple named their daughter Meru after the mountain in India that many consider the world's most challenging climb. In Hindu mythology, Meru is the center of the universe. In Folsom, Meru's digestion problems keep her up all night crying. The irony of the baby's name is not lost on her parents. And I kind of laugh about that a lot because it's all the challenges and yet the reward and the beauty of it all. Like climbing a mountain every single day. Mm -hmm. It's now four months since Meru was born. Melissa recently got out on her own for a mountain bike ride. It was her first break from the family and it didn't go so well. After our tough labor, and, and just battling with the postpartum depression and just, I just felt like I was in a cloud. It was not myself and I had lost my life. And so I'm on the ride and I embarrassingly just made a rookie move and flipped over the handlebars and I immediately knew something was wrong. She broke her elbow. The accident happened just as Justin qualified for an endurance race that required him to leave town for a few weeks to train. So it's been Melissa alone in the tiny house with a broken arm and a baby. I ask her, at what point do you change your living situation? And Justin and I have had like serious conversations about, okay, next June, like we're going to change because, you know, we're so used to moving around and now we've been settled for so long. It's time for a move. And I just like was brought to tears thinking like, I love this place. I really genuinely love living here. And I know it's crazy on the outside, but it, it, it's home to us. Meru recently started sleeping through the night outside. Cloth diapers hang on a clothesline. It might be close quarters, but this young family has everything they need. Little Meru in the tiny house, the center of the universe. For the California Report, I'm Alan Young in Folsom. I have never felt enough. As a mixed-race kid, half-Korean, half-Spaniard, daughter of immigrants. That's journalist Christina Kim. She says she's never known what boxes to check. I have always been too Spanish for my Korean side, too Korean for my Spanish side, and a little too brown for everyone. When I was little, I dreamed of going somewhere and having someone be like, hey, you're one of us. I would have killed for that feeling of belonging without conditions or questions. When you're like me, of two worlds living in a third new world, the U.S., language is your calling card. It's your currency. It can feel like the thing, the thing that makes you real and makes you belong. I know this because whenever I get to speak Spanish with someone in the middle of an otherwise English-only day, I feel so connected to them. We always share that smile of recognition that makes me feel so whole, even if it's just for one moment. So not being able to speak Korean 
made me feel not Korean enough, not Asian American enough, but also, more painfully, it made me feel less my father's daughter. My father, Kim Dong-ju, was born in Gwangju, South Korea in 1946, a year after Hiroshima and four years before the Korean War, a war he still remembers in the fragmented flashbacks of the child that he was. He was going to have to fight a whole other war, the Vietnam War, which, because South Korea was a U.S. ally, sent around 300,000 troops. My grandfather didn't want his firstborn son to fight a war that had nothing to do with them and to possibly die. Luckily, they knew a Jesuit priest who knew some people who knew some other people, and the next thing my dad knows, he has a visa and is all set to get his undergraduate and master's degrees all the way in Spain. He got on a plane in 1967 to Madrid, and he never went back to live in Korea ever again. When my dad gets to Spain, he's one of the very few Koreans or Asian people of any kind there, because in true dramatic fashion, he escapes the Vietnam War to live under the Franco dictatorship. But that's a story for another time. My dad makes the best of things, though. He makes some friends, gets into fast cars, good clothes, and writes long letters to his mom late at night, and poetry about a homeland that's increasingly becoming more foreign to him. A few years into his life in Spain, he meets my mom on a blind date, and they fall in love, get engaged, and my mother's family is like, you're Catholic now. My dad is baptized, and he becomes who I've always known him as, Javier Kim. They have my two sisters in Madrid, but my dad had a dream, and part of that dream was giving my sisters a chance to thrive and to possibly belong. He had what still felt tangible then in 1983, the American dream. Fast forward to 1986. After nearly a whole lifetime together and my now teenage sisters in tow, my parents have their first and only American-born baby in California, me, Christina Hyunmi Kim. Growing up, being Korean was something we really didn't talk about. It wasn't like Spain and my Spanish family, which shaped every aspect of my life, or like the Univision news my whole family would watch at night. It was quiet, secret. It was my dad talking in hushed tones and not knowing what he said. It was my dad's Korean newspaper that only he knew how to read. It was my dad ordering for all of us and laughing with the Korean waitress in Oakland's K-Town while we all just smiled. It was hearing my dad sing Arirang, a Korean folk song, quietly in his room, and me walking in and seeing him cry as he listened and hummed along, and me crying with him, but not really knowing why, just crying. I had never even been to Korea, so at the age of 25, I negotiated with my dad, who had resisted taking me there, that if I got into a doctoral program, he would take me. I got in, and so we went. On the plane to Korea, armed with my tiny, crappy recorder, I asked my dad what he wanted to show me the most. ¿Qué es la cosa que más me quieres enseñar en todo Corea? No tengo ni idea, la verdad. Es que si no hay, como... He told me he didn't know because he hadn't lived there in so long, but that he wanted me to meet the people there most of all. There was a part of me that hoped that I would get there and instantly feel claimed, seen, home. I was sad that first night because of course that didn't happen. No one even thought I was Korean. Still, my dad took pride explaining the origins of Hangul, showing me the Buddhist temple. We laughed while we ate tteokbokki. He helped me navigate this whole fish market and ate the live baby squid with me. He showed me the school he had gone to, told me about the friends he made there that would go on to die in Kwanju during the 1980 uprising. 
We took quiet walks, and I learned more about my family. Daddy, ¿cómo ves Corea? Como siempre, hija. ¿Tú, tú cómo lo ves? Pues mira, tampoco he visto lo que tú. O sea, ahora, ahora vamos a ver ahora, más, más de cerca. I fell in love with Korea the more I learned about it. And one day, in the middle of a busy food market, when I asked my dad for kimchi lavado, which means washed kimchi in Spanish, which is what our family has always called mul kimchi, I realized that we hadn't stopped speaking Spanish the whole time in Korea. I was learning all about Korea, not in Korean, but in Spanish. And in fact, speaking Spanish with my dad while in Korea was the most authentically me I could ever be. And that telling me all about Korea and Spanish was actually my dad being his most authentic self. We hadn't talked a lot about Korea growing up, not because he didn't want to share it with me, but because he too was trying to figure out what it meant to be Korean. To be Korean in Spain, and now Korean and also Spanish in the U.S. Speaking Spanish at home, English at work, and Korean rarely. For him, kimchi lavado was also his way of saying mul kimchi. Mi papá, the Korean immigrant that went around the world and ended up in California, was just like me. He was Asian-American, Korean, Spanish, and even a little American, too. He was something in between all three. It brought me back to that song my dad always listens to that inexplicably makes us both cry, Arirang, the unofficial anthem of Korea, both Koreas, and resistance song during Japanese occupation, tells the story of two lovers indefinitely separated on different mountaintops that are forever longing for each other. The song perfectly encapsulates the division of Korea, but it also speaks to the beautiful sadness of being an immigrant like my dad, of longing for a homeland you once knew that's forever out of reach, that you long for even as you make new homes elsewhere. And in turn, it captures my experience too, the beauty of being mixed, of being Korean and also Spanish in America, of belonging to the borderlands, that space in between the two lovers in Arirang, that space where both my dad and I belong and are always enough. Christina Kim recently left KQED and moved to Los Angeles to become a producer for the show Here and Now. Thank you. We'll put some music on, we'll do some walking, some rolling, then we'll get together, do a group stretch, and then we're going to split up into two groups. We're going to have a basketball group and we're going to have the other group. And now we're going to visit a workout club inside a very literal box a state prison in Vacaville. This is a men's prison, but the inmates working out in this gym all identify as women. So I wanted them to have a safe place where they can wear their shorts, their bras, and their tops, and their little tennis shoes, and come out and just be ladies, and be able to work out, play basketball, just spend time with one another, helping each other get in shape. For the last six months, my colleague, KQED's Miranda Lightsinger, has been investigating conditions for transgender prisoners here in California. She's interviewed nearly 20 inmates, as well as lawmakers and advocates pushing for transgender prisoners to be housed with others who share their gender identity. And just a warning, some of the stories she's going to share with us today contain some graphic descriptions of violence. Hi, Miranda. Hi, Sasha. 
So tell us, what inspired this new investigation? Well, earlier this spring, I learned about legislation brought by uh, State Senator Scott Weiner from San Francisco that would allow transgender prisoners to be housed based on their gender identity rather than the sex assigned at birth. So a transgender woman in a women's facility, for example. And it got me curious. Uh, what are conditions for transgender prisoners in prison? What are they dealing with in one of the nation's most violent prison systems? We have few data points. There's some older studies that show prisoners in California were 13 times more likely to be sexually assaulted uh, than non-transgender prisoners, and that nationwide that number was 10 times more likely to be victimized. So does the state prison system track violence against transgender prisoners inside? It actually doesn't track violence against transgender prisoners or any subset of prisoners is what they told me. But we do know violence against them is happening. I met Yekaterina Patience. She goes by Kat. She told me she was raped when she first got to prison uh, in the 1990s. Back then, she was at Pelican Bay near the Oregon border, and it, it had a devastating impact on her life and how she lived her gender identity. I immediately cut all my hair off. Uh, kept my head bald for the next 27 years. I grew a mustache and a goatee and tried to adopt the hardest walk I could on the yard. I was terrified of it happening again and I was, I was not gonna be out for somebody else to do it. And unfortunately, it did happen again. She stayed in the closet for two decades before she found herself in a, a mental health crisis bed in prison. And she, she just said that she could no longer play the tough guy or any guy for that matter. She found uh, a circle of transgender women at the prison she was in at the time and uh, was able to kind of slowly make her way out of the closet. And things like the workout club, they help her feel better about being herself in prison. You know, Miranda, California is on the cutting edge in so many ways when it comes to transgender rights. I would have thought that California prisons would already be housing people according to their gender identity. It's a little complicated. The federal government said in 2012 that you cannot base housing solely on anatomy with transgender prisoners. It's not clear if California is complying with that. What they will tell you is that it's done on a case-by-case -case basis. Transgender advocates will say, though, that most of the other states, they are basing it solely on anatomy. In California... We found one person who is in a facility that matches her gender identity, but this is post-gender affirmation surgery, and it was ordered by a federal judge. That case was a pretty big breakthrough case where the state actually had to pay for gender reassignment surgery for that transgender inmate. Yes, this was the Shiloh Quine case in 2015. The state settled with her and agreed to provide her the surgery, plus to set standards for others to get it in prison. Um, the judge also ordered gender-appropriate clothing for uh, transgender inmates, uh, cosmetics, jewelry, bracelets, and earrings. One of the things that struck me in your reporting is your descriptions of some of the tricks that these transgender inmates used to, say, create makeup before they could get makeup in their prison commissary. They used to DIY their own, so they would make it out of Folgers, unsweetened cocoa, grease pins. There was one woman, C.J. Smith, she told me that she would take a Colgate toothpaste box, you know, the red part of the box, put some oil, baby oil on it and run a Q-tip over that and then make pink eyeshadow. Um, I talked to her at a transgender support group meeting where they were all putting on makeup now that they can buy it 
from the prison canteen. It makes me feel like, um, well, I'm a step closer to being who I really am. Um, perhaps I will never fully ever get there being nearly 60 years old, but I am content with who I am. So there have been some small changes and some bigger ones too. Things are getting a bit better for transgender prisoners, but assaults and murders continue to happen. I met one woman who had horrific scars on her face being attacked with a box cutter in the lunchroom and a death penalty case just wrapped up in Bakersfield. A transgender woman was killed by her cellmate. The day she was killed, I mean, they were only in the cell together for eight hours, actually. She started filling out a form saying, he's told me we're not compatible and I'm afraid of being raped again. And within hours, he had uh, tied her up and choked her repeatedly until she died. For advocates, it raised a lot of questions about housing and safety and how these two people ended up being paired together. Uh, But one thing that the advocates and the California Department of Corrections can agree on is that no one deserves to be attacked in prison because of who they are. It's enough to serve a sentence. That's the punishment. Did you talk to transgender men about this who are currently in women's prisons? How would they feel about the opportunity to transfer into a men's facility? Yes, I did. I spoke to two transgender men in the prison in Chowchilla, and they are not at all interested in going to a men's prison. They feel that it would be very unsafe for them. Uh, I spoke with Diamond Vargas, who identifies as F to M or female to male. How do you think I'm going to fare in a male institution? Absolutely no way that any F to M can survive in a male institution with or without surgery. Now, there's absolutely no way any of us could. So they felt that the legislation was really written for transgender women. They wondered why hadn't State Senator Weiner come to talk to them about it, and eventually he did. I spoke with him after his visits to a number of the state prisons, and he said that, yes, it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. Not all transgender women want to go to a women's prison, and not all transgender men want to go to a men's prison either. So what does Senator Weiner's bill say exactly? What would it do? So what it would do is it would give a choice to the prisoners. It would not force them, but it would give them a choice to say, I would feel safest in a women's facility. I would feel safest in a men's facility. There is a concern from advocates, however, that even if this gets passed, and it would be the third of its kind in the nation if it did, it really needs to have some teeth to actually enforce it for them to make these transfers and for it not to be a policy that exists only on paper. So time will tell. Lawmakers will be voting on it in the coming year. All right. Well, thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Sasha. Miranda Leitzinger is a digital producer and a reporter for KQED. She's been investigating conditions for transgender inmates in California state prisons. That's the California Report magazine for this week, taking a moment to step outside the box. Stay tuned next week when we head to Humboldt County to explore how legalizing marijuana has affected farming and food. We'll meet Beth Allen, who runs a local restaurant. She's known the pig farmer who supplies their meat for nearly two decades. He drives to Eureka with a trailer, gets whatever's left over from the Booth Brewing Company, and his pigs are raised on marijuana and beer. But legalizing marijuana means the price has dropped drastically. 
Locals who rely on the cannabis industry are more cautious about spending money on things like eating out. That economic downturn happened just as Beth was expanding the restaurant, adding a dining room. Unfortunately, uh, I have really bad timing because our community was collapsing. I mean, we would have no one. We would just, all of the staff, we would just stand here. Now, Beth says, she's really questioning her earlier support of legalization. I just, I lay in bed at night and think, what was I thinking? (laughs) That's next week on the California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. If you want to catch all of our shows, you can always subscribe to our podcast. Just look for the bear wearing earbuds. Our director is Susie Racho. Seal Muller is our technical producer, and we had additional engineering this week from Katie McMurrin and Rob Spate. Special thanks this week to Diane Bach. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon, and the California Report's editorial team also includes Bianca Taylor, John Brooks, Monica Lamb, Alice Wolfley, Asala Sanapur, Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks so much for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, presenting Trade-Offs, a new podcast that tries to make sense of our costly and complicated healthcare system. Subscriptions at tradeoffs.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there, I'm Randa Dilfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.